The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Now, for the week trending, we are joined by arts and culture journalist Kate Mulder and also by the MD of the Communications Clinic, Owen Tomas McDermott. And to start, we're going to talk about a story which broke earlier in the week, which apparently was about something that happened 18 months ago, but which didn't get into the public eye at that time. But this is a racism incident involving gymnastics in Ireland. And although initially... The, there have been requests not to share the video of what particularly happened at a medal ceremony. It actually has been shown on the BBC this week, along with an interview of the parents of the young girl involved, who's clearly shown in the video. Let's hear a little bit from that BBC interview where the mother of this young girl, who didn't get her participation medal, spoke about the apology from Gymnastics Ireland being useless. It is painful to actually state and know the obvious. My daughter was the only black child in that competition. She stood out well. There was no excuse for what happened. She felt very upset about what happened. It's more like they almost blamed her for being black. I was very uncomfortable. I actually yelled from far. When I got back home, you know, we saw the video and all of that. It was like, did it really happen? I couldn't really believe that did happen. They only sent us an, an apology because the world wanted them to, because we cried for so long. We kind of told her, regardless of your skin colour, people shouldn't treat you differently. Kate Mulder, tell us a little bit more about this. So, yeah, as you said, the video shared during the week and it was just desperately sad to see a lineup of young um, gymnasts, people who have obviously trained uh, for some for years to get to this stage in their life, and one girl was left out. One child was left out. Now, this broke 18 months ago, as you said. Um, and what the response has been recently was that uh, the person who was giving out the medals, when they were giving out the medals, when they came to this black child, there was a tangle. And so the, the, the necklace, I suppose, part of it was tangled. It feels like a bit of a damp squib. The parents have since come out and say, even though it happened 18 months ago, they have only been apologised to since it's like broke in national and international now media. And I'm inclined to believe them. Own, Own Tomas and I were speaking about it earlier. Like it, it just is heartbreaking and it almost feels like there's nothing we can say to make it better. I've read that this girl is still competing in gymnastics, which shows the strength of her character. Um, and I know that her name or her mother's name hasn't been mentioned even when they have been pursued by media, um, which is great. Because as we know, the family could become a target of racism, which is horrific to say. But when you see this happen so blatantly and so flagrantly, like this exists from the top down. Those people who are watching that video, those children who are watching that video will see, okay, this is how we should treat this person, this person who is different to us, this person who is visually different or whatever. And they will decide that that's all right. And that's how racism grows. Ultimas, what did you make of it? It's an example of an organisation handling the entire situation terribly badly. If you look, for example, at the video, which is uncomfortable viewing, you can see... Very uncomfortable. That, yeah, that you can see that nobody intervenes in what is clearly uh, a, a, a terribly bad thing that has occurred, not giving the, the, the child the medal. Then it's a classic example of you have done something wrong, it's best to say sorry and to say sorry fast. And the fact that 18 months has passed and that the apology came this 
this week, you would have to say something has gone terribly, terribly wrong here. When I have read into this, it would seem that the official who was involved in the in the medal uh, issue uh, had written an apology that they had hoped that would be sent to the parents, and it would seem that Gymnastics Ireland had intervened in this apology way back closer to and when didn't send it and didn't send it. So I think if you look, that was certainly an issue, and I think from the official's part point of view, as as we have heard that maybe there was a there was a, from their perspective a genuine reason that this had happened and that they wanted to apologise because they understood how horrific it was but Gymnastics Ireland intervened then there then seemed to be another document sent to the parents that began with to whom this may concern and again you would say in any type of apology or in any type of communication it should be done as personal as possible and this is another one and then the apology eventually comes um, this week where they have apologised publicly through it but you begin to question well what are the motivations for this apology is it that they are feeling genuinely uh, sorry for what they have done or are they motivated by the the international furore around it with the likes of Simone Biles the BBC and people engaging in the story and that creates a problem so you would look at this It's a delay in apologising really because even if there was a genuine mistake made that there wasn't racism involved the failure to actually deal with it immediately created a realistic perception that it must have been racist. Matt, if you think about any of us in our lives, whether it's at home or in work, and you make a mistake, the best thing to do is say sorry and say sorry quickly and mean it. And that is the thing where you're looking at this, where you're saying there is a whole series of things that have gone wrong. And typically in a crisis where it becomes public 18 months later, 18 months later, when that happens in a crisis, you still know somebody, the relationship had broken down terribly and it is because the, the apology was not meaningful and was not quick. Kate, how unfortunate is this as well in that we have, over the last couple of decades, had an enormous influx of people from other countries who've come to live in Ireland and that the way that many of them assimilate is through sport mm. and through their children getting involved in sports and for then this type of thing to happen. Well, I think if I was a black person watching that video, I would think, okay, this is not a place in which I will feel safe and I would not enroll my children in it. I I think this is going to have a massive knock-on effect for people who feel they look different or people who feel like they don't involve or aren't involved um, already in society. I, I think it's hugely, hugely detrimental to those who just want to belong. Let's move on. And Kate, I'll stay with you because you write about arts and culture on a regular basis. What do you make of this idea and explain this idea that's come forward this week for a special museum, a new national women's museum? So, yes, um, on to more exciting and and, uh, beneficial news. So, uh, Catherine Martin and a group of selected women have come together to propose um, a specific women's women's museum um, in Ireland. So, Women's museums already exist all around the globe. There is one in Hanoi, DC, Cleveland, Norway, Seoul, Mexico City. Um, And they all um, kind of speak from the same place, which is that our collective national story, as it is, is incomplete without women's stories. And so in many ways, it's kind of looking back to move forward, right? So women have been kind of traditionally and systemically um, left out of the conversation when it comes to history. Um, And more kind of male... 
more kind of roles we associate with men. So say politics as well would be a big one. And so each time a girl opens up a history book um, and sees a womanless story, she learns that she is worth less than her male counterparts. Something like this could be instrumental in, in establishing female worth in that setting. Well, what about the argument that you should actually create some sort of balance in our existing museums to have a greater emphasis on artworks, maybe whatever, from female artists, <coughs> various other things, rather than having something separate? Absolutely. So I, I totally totally understand that and in a perfect world that would be the case but as we've seen with politics and the gender quota that is not the case History is written traditionally with a, from the point of view of the man, so meaning millions of women over time have been forgotten and or discredited. So it's been proven time and time again that history books show an overwhelming bias towards male historians and subjects. And men also, by and large, don't seek out stories for women. I'm... I'm not all men here, um, but that extends today in, in television shows, radio programs and all sorts of media. Women are far more statistically likely to consume information about a man. And so when it comes to, say, history books, these books are um, are generally sold when people uh, walk into a place for an off-the-cuff kind of unplanned purchase, the average punter armed with little inform- only inform- no more information than the name of the author in the blurb will tend to trust a woman author about uh, women or childcare or health and, and a man about history. So we've always kind of felt that more as a male thing, whereas um, there are so many instances where women have been left out and, and I think something like this would really plug that gap. Could I suggest to Tomas that we need both, that we need maybe our existing museums and cultural institutions to perhaps look at including more things that are relevant from women and for women, but at the same time this National's Women Museum is a very good idea. I mean, for God's sake, if we have a rugby museum in Limerick, hmm. surely we should have room for something like this. I totally agree with you, Matt. Uh, I think were you to look and say that there was an opportunity to expand um, certain areas or certain aspects of our current museums, I think that would be very sensible. Certainly I remember around the 1916 uh, commemoration and the the museum there, there was a, a significant portion given to the women of uh, the revolution, um, Margaret Skinner, for example, and others, which I think, again, is hugely valuable given their presence within it. But I'm sure were you to still go on Grafton Street and ask who were the main protagonists of 1916, Margaret Skinner would not come up on that list first and foremost. I then think it is worth us doing and a very wor- worthwhile thing uh, is is to to secure and to keep strong the memory of people who were treated as uh, second-class citizens in whatever context. And as we know, women in Ireland for a significant proportion, if not for um, centuries, were treated as second-class citizens. So the mother the and vote, baby homes. The mother and baby homes. They didn't have the vote. Uh, they had to leave their civil service jobs after getting married. It's a marriage ban. Would you try and explain that to certain mm, generations? Precisely, and that we still see that uh, the constitution is up for debate in relation to uh, the special role uh, in the home uh, for women. So we can still see that. And so there therefore is value in uh, in re- remembering that and remembering the success and struggle of women. Also, Kate just touched on a thing there in relation to go forward, you have to go back. There is certainly a sense sometimes that when when prejudice is largely eradicated, it goes away. But what we're now seeing, certainly with the likes of Andrew Tate and others, is that misogyny is actually creeping back, maybe not even creeping back, is slamming back into our faces. And that's certainly something we need to be considering. Well, we'll get to Lawrence Fox and GB News after the break. But just to finish on this particular point, Kate DeMulder, you know, politicians always look for legacies. They get limited times in ministerial office. So might this be one, do you think, that Minister Catherine Martin should accelerate in what time might be left to her in government? 
I understand what you're saying. I do believe, like want to think that she's doing it for all the right reasons, and I think it's um, been a very long time coming. I know that um, that different surveys and movements have been in place for several years before we've even gotten to this stage. Um, and I think it's now more than ever we need women's voices in the, to the fore and if that's her legacy then what a one to be involved in. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. Kate Mulder and Aunt Tomas McDermott are with us. We will talk about uh, that Lawrence Fox story. We'll tell you all about it if you're not aware of it. Quite outrageous. And other things that we'll get to including modern phone etiquette coming up after this break. For the week trending we're joined by Kate Mulder and Aunt Tomas McDermott and Aunt if I could start with you f- for a small station on British television GP News manages to get a lot of publicity and attention because of controversies that emanate from what happens on it. Uh, tell us about the actor Lawrence Fox and what he did on air this week. Yeah, so I'll give people a quick background because I wasn't overly familiar with Lawrence Fox and who he was. Um, he is an actor turned politician. He was one of the founders of the Reclaim Party. People w- may have heard of the Reclaim Party. They're a white-wing populist uh, political party in the UK. Uh, Lawrence Fox over the last while had criticised the likes of the George Floyd protests, COVID vaccines. So we kind of get the picture of what his uh, shtick is. He was on with Dan Wooten, who was a jur- on GB News with Dan Wooten. And people may recognise that name. He's a journalist and broadcaster, formerly of The Sun, and now actually formerly of The Mail. They fired him. Uh, people this might, week, because this of week. what happened. Yeah, they might recognise his name. During the summer, there was allegations of very inappropriate behaviour, like catfishing, um, for example, which he denies, um, but tricking people to send uh, graphic images of, um, of themselves to him. So so Dan Wooden has a show on Tuesday evenings and Lawrence Fox was on, uh, on as a contributor. He actually has a show on GB News as well, but he was on as a contributor in relation to this. And they, in the conversation or in the interview, Fox made very inappropriate remarks of a sexual nature about a journalist called Ava Evans. And um, after that then... And Wooden uh, laughed. And Oh, Wooden laughed. And then there was a series of text messages afterwards that again confirmed that they were both in cahoots. Ofcom are now investigating haven't gotten more, who are the regulator or the uh, regulator, yeah, investigating um, it and they have like over 7,000 um, complaints. This is their 12th investigation into GB News. So you'd look at it to say, well, gosh, they're struggling to get their hands around how to manage GB News. And that's a very big question in terms of media management, as you would know, Matt, well, in terms maybe of how they're deliberately doing it. Kate, I know you were writing about this for the currency this weekend. Yeah. What's your take on this? So it, it feels frightening and poignant that this happened in the same week that a 17-year-old boy killed a 15-year-old girl in London for not accepting romantic advances. So as no more than with the racist argument we were talking earlier, these things come from the top down. Lawrence Fox decided to attack a journalist whose views over, of all things, male mental health made him um, angry. She was asked, um, she's a political correspondent for joe.co.uk. She was asked on a BBC uh, Politics Live programme uh, whether there should be um, a minister for male mental health because of the staggering um, male suicide endemic over there. And she said there should be a minister for mental health in general, not just for men. This angered Lawrence Fox. And he decided the worst way to uh, take her down was to assess her desirability. Um, doing so was horrendous. Wooten also acted as a, a bystander there and didn't do anything, which also is not equally as horrendous, but still worth noting. And so, so, Sorry, Kate, I think it was even worse than just been a bystander. Mm. He just sort of laughed along encouragingly. 
Which is really tricky because I have been in situations either in WhatsApp conversations or in or in public or in person ones where someone has said something horrendous and people have not wanted to be that person to say that's not right or I don't think that's okay or you should feel bad about that or whatever. And that's, I think, actually affected us all in kind of different ways, whether we should say something or not. And it is tricky to do, but when you see it on public funded uh GB News, it, it feels particularly galling. Lawrence Fox, no more than anything else, if people watch him doing this, they're going to think what he is doing is okay. And that's not a million miles away from a 17-year-old boy who packs a, a bunch of roses and a machete-style knife in his backpack uh, for reacting that way when he's been rejected romantically. GB News have said that they're appalled by this and I think that again is almost as, as surprising given that they are GB News and it reminds me of the parable that Donald Trump tells which is again staggering that Donald Trump himself tells it where he talks about the snake being injured on the road and a woman bringing the snake into the house and bringing it back to great health and then when the snake is fit and healthy again it bites the woman and the woman says well why did you bite me and the snake says you knew what I was when you took me in GB News knew exactly what they were getting with Dan Wooten and Lawrence Fox and they have delivered the content that they were expecting to do. As mentioned, there are 12 investigations in relation to GB News. Ofcom are trying to deal with this and trying to manage them in a way that has them playing by the rules but it's very, very difficult and there seems that they're struggling greatly. As we know that GB News have Conservative MPs on air, that again one would argue is uh, not just on air but as presenters. Uh, You would know that that is certainly um, going to be a challenge and there is going to be the difficulty where Ofcom are going to be trying to manage the output of GB News while still allowing GB News to kind of build an audience, which is going to be an incredibly difficult balancing act because the risk, one could say, is these people will end up going online where there are no rules and we look at them building audiences like Russell Brand has built over six and a half million viewers where he's able to spew whatever he wants. Okay, look, let's go to something entirely different and let's talk about phone etiquette because... People's use of phones seems to have changed so dramatically. I know we still have a landline at home. I can't remember when I last heard it ring or when anyone has actually gone to use it. Everybody just uses their mobile phones. But it's also rare for people, it seems, to have a conversation on their mobile phone. Okay, I'll start with you, Kate. Give me some of the most important new rules of phone etiquette. So, according to um, the Washington Post... um, we cannot call someone without texting beforehand. So ask permission to actually ring effectively, isn't it? Yes, as in if I wanted to call you, I I should text you, can I call you beforehand? Proper order. Uh, Proper order. I have to admit I do that nearly all the time now, yes. Yeah. We also shouldn't leave a voicemail. I'm actually quite in favour of that because who texts their voicemail? It's not 2004. Um, you don't need to answer the phone, uh, apparently, if someone is dialing. That I also kind of agree with because of the rise of scam numbers these days. I don't answer phone calls if I don't know the person. If you don't have a name coming up. If I don't have a name coming up, I don't of answer. of course, should have texted you beforehand. Famously. To, yeah, famously. famously. <laughs> um, emotions are for the voice, facts are for text. So if you want to convey something that might be lost in context... Um, or be taken up in a weird way, you should send a voice note. Yeah, I jump in on that actually, Please. Yes, on the voice over text. I, that was the one that jumped out at me where it said, if you're dealing in emotions, speak to the person. And if it's dealing in facts, you can send the text. When we look at this in business communications, that when communications become challenging, people tend to go to email, for example, because they don't want to do it face to face. Whereas by putting it in an email, it creates the issue far, far worse. Mm. That people move away from wanting to deal with the emotional, challenging, hard stuff 
face to face verbally or over the phone using voice so, so Whereas, people misinterpret what's written at times don't they because they assume a tone which may not be there precisely. but then again I had a boss who many years ago also told me never put anything like that in an email or in a text and stuff because you don't want a record of it to exist. Well, that's a, that could be a very fair um, piece as well, Matt, or sometimes you may want a record of it to exist. So that, that idea yes. of emotions, um, use your voice, and for facts, use text was one that jumped out at me. What, are, what else, Kate, do you have there? We also have uh, stay still for video calls, which I thought was funny. Uh, if I wanted a video call someone, I should like push the phone down or leaning against something so it's not moving around to make someone feel queasy. I'm not sure about that myself. Um, and also finally, that talking on the phone isn't dead. It's just there are steps in place before we do that, allegedly. Okay, it says don't use speakerphone in public. But what about even making phone calls and having conversations in public? I mean, having to listen to somebody else's conversation when going home on the bus after work, as happens to me regularly. Mm. Yes, yeah, very annoying. And even though, the, the, and that is also now happening within offices, where within offices and open planned offices, you could say maybe 10 years ago, people speaking on the phone was de rigueur, it was normal, people took it in their stride. Whereas now, when a phone call is being taken in the office, everybody looks waiting for the person to walk out and go to a quieter room. So there is a, there is a changing kind of acceptability in terms of uh, phone usage. But like I remember. About five years ago, an Irish university asked us to speak to um, their business students to talk about how to speak on the phone and how to manage relationships and communications over the phone. I suspect were we to be doing that, we would be weaving in um, some of, if we were to do it again, we'd be weaving in some of those rules. Okay, unfortunately, I'm out of time. There was other things I wanted to talk to you about, but we don't have time. I'm going to have to leave it there. On Tomas McDermott, Managing Director of the Communications Clinic, and Kate Mulder, Arts and Culture Journalist. Thank you very much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.